You're listening to On the Record Off Script, the podcast. My name is Mark Coffin, and I'm one of the hosts. For the past two years, me and the Offscript team have been tracking down former members of the Nova Scotia Legislature. Whenever we found one, we invited them to take part in an exit interview. Exit interviews are conversations that employers have with their employees once they've left or decided to leave a job. To get answers to the questions that would be uncomfortable or unwelcome if the employee had to keep showing up to work in the weeks and months ahead. We sat down with dozens of former MLAs and had them reflect on their time in public life. We asked them to tell us about the good, the bad, and the ugly of how Nova Scotia politics works from the inside. All of our interviews were on the record, but what we heard didn't sound much like the usual scripts. This is the spot. This is the spot in the podcast where we're going to have to start putting advertising. Unless we get enough donations that we don't have to sell any advertising at all. Okay, nobody likes to talk about this part, but the only thing that makes this possible is by being able to continue to cover the production costs of this podcast. We spent two years in pre-production to make it, and if you listen to last week's podcast, you have a sense of the kind of recordings that we're sitting on, and we need your help to make sure that they make it to air. We've sketched out at least 30 more episodes that we'd like to produce for you in the next year, 3-0. And what we're hoping for is just a little bit of support, just a teensy bit of support from each listener to make sure these episodes and the stories we heard make it to that little device in your pocket. We were really surprised by how many people listened to last week's podcast, and thank you to all the listeners. If every person who listened to that podcast gave just $3 a month, we'd have enough to produce like half the episodes we want to make for you in the next year. That's a basic cup of drip coffee with a decent, uh, okay tip to your barista. I know what you're thinking. This podcast is worth more than a cup of coffee a month. It's worth at least the price of a beer. So you can also give $5, which is cheap for a beer. So you can also give $8, which is like getting steep, but we'll take it. So if you'd like to support the podcast, go to offscript.ca slash donate. Okay, here's your podcast for the week. Close your eyes. Picture the average politician. What kind of clothes are they wearing? How old are they? What kind of career did they have before they went into politics? Are they a man or a woman? Now picture them surrounded by their friends, their family, brothers, sisters, their spouses, and their parents. What kind of image are you left with? Does it look like this? So tell me what you did before you entered politics. Uh, well, I began as a nurse. I, I studied as a nurse. I did a postgraduate in nursing uh, in New York City after I graduated. Prior to politics, I was a farmer, and we milked registered Holsteins. I was a Baptist minister and also taught uh, university part-time. So I was a, a consulting engineer. The first political meeting I was at in my life was the night I was nominated. I was a lawyer in Nova Scotia, and the first uh, political meeting I ever attended as an adult was one to determine whether or not I would run for the leadership of uh, the Liberal Party. Sure. Uh, so uh, I edited a, a, a regional, radical regional progressive magazine here called New Maritimes in the, in the 80s. So I'm a, I'm a kind of a writer, minister, politician. Began, first of all, I was a school teacher prior to being married. Pretty well a stay-at-home mom, if you will, uh, with my three daughters. 
So I was just uh, became a sort of a well-known volunteer, if you will. I practiced law. I, I taught law. I was the director of various organizations, uh, some of them labor organizations, and uh, uh, one of them um, a, a major environmental organization, the Ecology Action Center. My job as uh, CUPE rep was in education, and I used to teach political action workshops for CUPE members. Now, it'd be an understatement to suggest that politicians are a misunderstood lot. Perhaps the biggest misunderstanding the public has is the popular belief about where politicians come from, what motivates them to run, and how exactly they rise to power. If you read the comments section on online news articles, listen to talk radio, or skim the letters to the editor section of newspapers, it's not hard to develop a pretty clear image of what certain people think a politician is. They are power hungry. They are only in it for the pension and the expense account. They're like moths to a spotlight, always looking for attention. Of course, that's the stereotype. But anybody who knows stereotypes knows that they aren't always accurate. Stereotypes are a portrait of something that we've all helped create over time. They are painted with shades of truth, half-truth, straight-up fiction, and a good coating of exaggeration. When we asked MLAs why they ran for office, we heard a variety of responses. But we also heard something else. In their answers, we heard why they initially ran, but they also framed it with the perspective granted to them by hindsight. Their decision to seek elected office often came at the expense of certain things they hadn't planned for, like the destruction of lifelong friendships, the end of marriages, endless public criticism, verbal and sometimes even physical abuse, and public embarrassment. Nobody plans for this stuff to happen. In these stories, there was something incredibly human. Now, before doing these interviews, we weren't quick to accept the conclusions about what motivates someone to seek elected office, as expressed by talk radio listeners and the people who take up most of the space on online news articles. But after hearing the stories of MLAs reflecting on their motivations for entering public life, it was even harder to believe that these people were initially motivated by some primal drive for money, power, and the spotlight. So we put it to MLAs. Why did you run for office? Here's what they said. You be the judge. People often ask me, well, you know, what is a minister doing in politics? I say, well, you know, if you, you go get a Bible and you open it to any page, and if you can find a page that doesn't have both uh, politics and religion on it, uh, I'll go buy a lunch. I don't think there are any such pages. I realized that even if the criminal justice system was going to be fixed, um, we were still going to have most of the fundamental problems that we have in society. The best way to begin, uh, to begin to tackle those challenges might be to become involved in politics. My stepfather reminded me uh, a couple of years ago that what I had said at the time was that I thought it might be a good, a good occasion to get some ideas out in front. And uh, I'd forgotten that that was really my, my reasoning because I did have concerns and still do have concerns uh, about a number of issues and it motivated me to think, oh, well, at least I can, people listen to me for 30 days. You know, so I'm not going to say I got into politics because I wanted to make a difference. I'm going to say because it looked really fun and interesting. All of the responses you just heard were from people whose answers were somewhat unique compared to their peers. For many of the MLAs, it was the right time in their lives and in their communities to run for office. Many were near retirement age when they decided to run. Their youngest children had finally left home, and they had some space in their schedules. They would have liked to run for office earlier, but they didn't see becoming an MLA as a family-friendly decision. And for some, the political climate in their riding had something to do with their decision to run. 
The seat they ran for might have been held by their own party for a while, but the person who held the seat wasn't reoffering. And for others, the incumbent from another party wasn't reoffering, so it became a competitive race again. And there were, of course, others still who ran simply because another party's incumbent was reoffering. What, what really, I think, drew me into politics was the Conservatives uh, had a representative here in the riding that wasn't a very nice person especially for uh, for women and for minority groups. Uh, he just wasn't, he was the complete opposite of me. So somebody said, well, why don't you run against him? If, uh, if you feel that strongly, well, why don't, you, why don't you do something about it? Okay, I'm going to make a bit of an audio footnote here to explain something that we're doing with this podcast. One thing you might be wondering is, why aren't we telling you the names of all of the MLAs? Why aren't we naming names? So there's two parts to that answer. One is that we don't think the names matter so much as the patterns, the patterns we can see in how people's answers compare to one another. Um, and then the second reason is that uh, there's just a lot of names. It makes it hard to read, and I'm guessing it makes it hard to listen to. That said, if you're curious, you can find out who all of the speakers are on the Offscript website at offscript.ca. Within a day or so of each podcast, we aim to publish a transcript of the entire episode, where we tell you who the speaker is for every clip and quote you hear on the show. And whenever we take a deep dive into somebody's story, uh, we're certainly going to tell you who they are and uh, what their kind of two-line biography is, uh, so you have a sense of who you're listening to. Okay, end of footnote. So the majority of MLAs we interviewed were asked to run, either by the party, their friends, or their families. I, I was asked if, uh, if, I, if I would run. And I went to this meeting, and towards the end of this meeting, somebody said, oh, by the way, we've got to talk about this by-election in Halifax Atlantic. We need, we need a candidate. And somebody turned to me and said, what about you? So what was the invitation to consider being a candidate? Mm. It was a surprise. Uh, it really came out of left field. And I was really afraid that I was going to lose friends and neighbors as friends and allies and that this, this whole thing would in fact um, kind of bring me into disrepute. And so I initially said no, I wouldn't, like, no thank you very much. Now, some of the MLAs we spoke to would never have run had it not been for a push from their party, family or friends. Ramona Jennings, the former MLA for King South, a riding that includes Wolfville and some surrounding areas, had volunteered for the NDP for years and was responsible for recruiting candidates for quite some time. Despite being involved in several candidate searches, she'd never considered running herself. That is, until someone from the party gave her a nudge. I was always on the hunt. And then one day I got a phone call after I had put some names forward for the area that I had lived in and uh, I got a phone call from someone in the party and they said has anyone ever asked you to run and I said no one's ever asked me to run I've always done the asking and they said well will you I said just let me think about that for I want to talk to my kids and uh, I talked to the children the children said yeah and my son who's now deceased said mom I don't know why you didn't do it before like, that, that was his first comment, he goes, and I said, well, you, you usually wait to be asked. Did somebody ask you to run yes. as a candidate? Yes, people in the community. Yes, actually, the people that encouraged me most were uh, my brother-in-law and his wife. I think I was 
kind of encouraged to run. I mean, there's a tradition in the NDP of doing fairly thorough candidate search. 21 of the 40 former MLAs we interviewed were asked to run. Of course, there is something implied in the answer to that question. The answer almost suggests that if they were never asked, they never would have run. Michael McMillan and Alison Lote, the folks behind the federal ex-interviews with former members of parliament, called this the creation myth of a politician. Now, I can't prove this next part, but I suspect the people giving this answer fell into two categories. In the first category are the people who said it and meant it. They'd never really put much thought into running, and being asked was the first stage in their own decision-making process of whether or not to run. In the second category are the people who were just waiting to be asked. For them, being asked wasn't the first step of the process of deciding to run. It was the final step. It was almost as if it was a symbolic gesture, or a ritual, like something you had to wait for in order to run. Maybe it was that last boost of confidence they needed, maybe it was that they had to feel uh, wanted in order to position themselves as helpers and not power seekers. Now, most people were asked to run, but you might be surprised by some of the people who didn't have to wait to be asked. In 2001, a member of the NDP's research staff was discouraged by his colleagues to seek the nomination for the NDP in the riding that Eileen O'Connell had held until she'd passed away earlier that year. Oh, very much my own decision. Nobody was encouraging me to run. Uh, in, in, fact, in fact, I was actively discouraged from running by the, the, um, the senior staff members in the NDP caucus office. They were death, deathly afraid of being accused of favoritism. And so they bent over backwards to make things as difficult as possible for me to run because they, they just it, it, inside the party I don't know if it's like this in other parties but inside the NDP they just they just are so afraid of being accused of favoritism so they, for, for good reasons they said all the staff needed to be neutral. Graham Steele who would eventually go on to become the finance minister in Daryl Dexter's NDP government had heard who the other prospective candidates were and thought he could do the job better so he decided to run. So I couldn't get any help from any you know of my colleagues uh, they, when I told them that I was thinking about running, they were the opposite of excited. And at what point, I guess, when would the thought have first occurred, have occurred to you that you should be uh, a politician? Well, my father uh, asked me at one point, um, shortly after I graduated from, from university, about what my interests were uh, for politics. And, and I think he was you know, questioning me to see what... Uh, what uh, that might be if I had interest in running municipally someday or something like that. And, and I knew that my interest was uh, provincial. That's former Premier and former Progressive Conservative Party leader Rodney MacDonald talking about a conversation he had with his father, who was a former municipal politician in Inverness County. At that point, I was 22, and I said that I wasn't really interested in running for politics anytime soon. But... Uh, just five years later, the 1998 election left Rodney's party, the PC party, in third place and saw the party's candidate in his riding lose by over 2,000 votes. That same election saw the NDP and the Liberals tie with 19 seats each, and it was well understood that the Liberal government wouldn't keep their hold on power long, and another election was right around the corner. Rodney had been an active member of the PC party throughout his university days, well before he became a candidate. So all this time, he'd been attending local riding association meetings anyways. Daniel Rankin, actually, from Mabu. I, I believe I went to the meeting that, that time with, uh, with him, and, and uh, I went, and uh, I 
met with a few of the people, I believe the meeting was in Wakagama, they indicated that they were going to be having a nomination. And I really didn't indicate any interest, I was just listening. Now, in the back of his mind, he knew he would someday want to be a provincial candidate, but he hadn't yet made up his mind nor shown his hand about his motivations. And it didn't quite look like the party's chances would be very good if he did get involved at that point in time. But eventually, he was persuaded by a speech given by the party's leader. I liked what I heard. So, yeah, when I heard John Hamm, I decided I'd run for the nomination. It was a contested nomination. It was over 700 people signed up. Uh, there was almost 500 there. And uh, I became the, the nominated candidate. Did you know going in that you had uh, recruited the most supporters? Sometimes <clears throat> I suspected I did, yeah. That was former Progressive Conservative Party leader and former Premier of Nova Scotia, Rodney MacDonald. Before Danny Graham became a politician, he was a defense attorney. In 2001, he was working for the Department of Justice in Ottawa. And Danny was one of those people who was asked to run. There was a catch, though. He wasn't just asked to run for the local nomination to become the Liberal candidate. He was asked to run for a position that carried a bit more responsibility than that. I had been approached a number of months earlier to consider getting involved in politics, uh, running for the leadership of the Liberal Party, and after careful consideration I said no, and a pretty emphatic no. At the Department of Justice, he was working on a proposal for Canada's first National Restorative Justice Program, and on September 11, 2001, he was two weeks away from taking his proposal to the federal cabinet. But when the terrorist attacks of 9-11 happened in the United States, he was handed a new assignment. I spent time at the Federal House of Commons uh, as a liaison for members of Parliament on the government side uh, in terms of helping understand what this really important piece of legislation was about because it was potentially changing the relationship between government and Canadian citizens around liberties. And I realized that, um, oh my heavens, this uh, group of political leaders has very little knowledge of what they're talking about. And I'm really a courier of speeches that are being written by government officials to be uh, read in the House of Commons uh, that they had nothing to do in uh, drafting. During his time on Parliament Hill, his appreciation of the need for meaningful public policy debate grew, and he thought this was something he might be able to work on in Nova Scotia. But then after this experience of working on the anti-terrorism legislation and realizing just how challenging it is to bring an informed, meaningful discussion in our legislatures, I uh, felt forced to reconsider the question of whether or not I would step up to public life and that was really the tipping point for me where I went back to my wife in Ottawa, uh, Sheila, and said I think we've got to rethink this and potentially move back to Nova Scotia. Within a month and a half I was in the middle of a leadership race involving a party that I had not been particularly involved in. For Danny, the decision to run involved an interruption in an otherwise stable and accomplished career. I was having trouble uh, appreciating the double standard that I was enjoying the benefits of, uh, I had enjoyed the benefits of uh, a Nova Scotia lifestyle that so many others didn't, and that I was enjoying the benefits of a Canadian lifestyle that so many people don't enjoy. And so um, 
if not me, then who? To sort of get out of the bleachers and get onto the field and try to make a difference in some fashion. My wife and I then engaged in these conversations about, you know, if not me, who? And, and maybe it's time I stood up and, you know, had a say and spoke out about these things and blah, blah, blah. So that's Robert Chisholm. He's best known for leading the Nova Scotia NDP from their sleepy third-party status to the 19 seats they won when they tied the governing Liberals in seat count in the 1998 election. And it ultimately left the Liberals in government, but positioned the NDP in a kind of government-in-waiting place. Now, before he became NDP leader, he sat as the MLA for Halifax Atlantic. He made the decision to run in December of 1990, the same day as the first anniversary of the massacre at a Cole Polytechnique in Montreal. I was going to a meeting of uh, uh, sort of the political action group of the Nova Scotia Federation of Labour and the NDP, um, and I, uh, you know, I remember to this day sitting in, in having coffee early in the morning, reading the Globe and Mail, uh, Scotia Square, before going to this meeting, and there was, you know, the the. Uh, Stories about the about the anniversary of the massacre uh, called Polytechnique. Um, there was, I think, at the same time, there had been a big announcement of massive layoffs in Air Canada or or, uh, or um, CBC, and and uh, I was, you know, just all wound up about that. Um, you know, wanting to speak up, what we weren't doing enough, we were blah blah blah. The sentiment expressed by Danny and Robert, this notion that you might be able to affect more change from inside of the system than outside of it, was one echoed by some of their colleagues. Uh, when I was faced with the situation of, of uh, living in a community, working in a community, running a business in a community, and seeing the negative effect that lack of attention has, the lack of attention by government has on a certain segment of society that are less fortunate, it kind of bothered me. And... Uh, so when I was asked if I, and I was active in the community, of course, at that point, and uh, that's when I was asked if I'd like to run. And I thought, you know what, maybe this is, maybe you fix it from the inside. It wasn't uncommon to hear of people who ran with some very specific issues in mind, issues they saw big potential for the provincial government to have an impact on. So what were some of those issues at the time? Well, um, they were uh, affordability of food. Absolutely. The affordability of healthy food, huge problem. Um, lack of emphasis on practical education. Uh, what I liked about provincial politics is that it gave the opportunity to be engaged in larger scale economic development matters or larger scale environmental matters or larger scale occupational health and safety issues, things that I thought were important uh, and and where the the provincial government exercised a lot of power. So I carefully looked at the parties that did the most for my people for the most number of years, particularly in the history of our race in the province of Nova Scotia. And that last voice was Wayne Adams. Throughout the 1970s, Wayne was a journalist, a municipal councillor, and a general man about community. When he was elected to Province House in 1993, he became the first African Nova Scotian to take a seat in the legislature. He represented the riding of Preston. 
he left a position he had held on municipal council, one he'd held for five terms to run for provincial office. And both times he ran, he did so because of the encouragement of family and friends in his community. The hardest part, he tells us, wasn't whether or not to run, but which party he wanted to run for. (laughs) And so it sounds like you had the option to run for one of the other parties as well? Oh, there's no question. I was supported heavily by both parties. parties. All three parties, I should say. Yeah. In fact, to this day, Alexa Madonna will tell you that she regrets so much that I didn't run for them. <laughs> Especially in 88 when she really had the pressure on me, and I almost did it. I talked to a lot of senior folks, some who were near death. When I was making that decision, I asked them, I'm thinking about running provincially. Should it be NDP, Tory, or Liberal? And inadvertently, unanimously, with no exceptions, <laughs> I was told, you better run Liberal. Hmm. Take care of your people, because no one else will. The image of a party candidate being a partisan insider wasn't one that held up for all of the former MLAs we spoke with. A handful of them, now some of the most household names in Nova Scotia politics, actually took a meandering path to land at their own parties, one that took them through other parties first. Alexa McDonough, who would go on to be the leader of the provincial and federal New Democratic parties, actually started out as a liberal. And, and I was inspired by Trudeau. You know, I really thought he, he captured the youth of my generation, really. But then I was really appalled at the shortfall between what was espoused on the election trail and what they actually did with the power they got so really early on. Alexa wasn't the only young liberal who would eventually make the leap to the NDP. Former NDP finance minister Graham Steele and NDP backbencher Clary McKinnon were also supporters of Pierre Trudeau. Leonard Prera, another former NDP MLA, is a self-described lifelong social democrat. Being a social democrat meant supporting candidates that championed social democratic values, something that Leonard saw in parties other than just the NDP. When I, when I was at university, I supported uh, uh, Flora McDonald, who was a conservative. Uh, and. Uh, you know, she was a she was very, in many ways a, a role model. Uh, you know, ideologically, I think uh, the idea of, uh, of uh, social justice, you know, is, is something the Red Tories and the NDP have in common. And what drew you to the Liberal Party? That's really a hard question to answer because at one time I was a candidate for the Tory Party. Hmm because I wanted the government of the day, which was then a liberal government, who were putting the garbage dump in Bedford, uh, I, I wanted a government change. And so I put my name forward. Didn't have a sweet clue what any of it was about. I was a young woman with two small children. Anyone who follows Nova Scotia politics is aware of the level of partisanship that can exist, the passion with which some members of all the parties believe in their own agenda, and the mistrust those same people have towards the motives of the parties that aren't their own and the people that belong to them. We wanted to know, how did MLAs decide to join one of these groups? Their answers weren't always easy to understand. And why did you decide to um, join the PCs as opposed to the Liberals or the NDP? Oh, I guess because they asked me to. Okay. Father and mother were both came from staunch conservative families. Not that that should influence a person. But. So it wasn't always easy to get a clear answer when we asked MLAs why they'd join their own parties. 
but of those who gave a clear answer, most did so by drawing a clear line between the values and ideas that the party held and their own values, issues, and priorities. The rest, which were a minority, were brought to their parties by their families, their friends, or were attracted to the character of the party's leader. Of course, it's not as easy as just choosing a party or even being the preferred choice of party insiders. Except in a few rare circumstances, you need to win the vote of the local party membership in order to run under that party's banner in the election. Thank you. This is a historic occasion for Yarmouth. The largest political gathering in recent memory. Two months ago, there were approximately 40 members of our Liberal Party in Yarmouth. We are now over 1,300 strong, united behind whoever secures this nomination. That's Zach Churchill, who now serves as the MLA for Yarmouth and is a minister in Stephen McNeil's Liberal government. Now, on that tape, he was speaking at a nomination meeting where Liberal Party members made him their candidate in a by-election in the summer of 2010. The MLAs we spoke to described the contested nominations they participated in as a battle for recruiting new members. Basically, the way it works is you sell memberships, and if you sell the most memberships, the idea is that those people will show up at the nominating meeting and vote for you. Seeking a nomination is um, the first step in the process, of course, but um, but it becomes a numbers game uh, primarily in that uh, you, know, you have to sign up as many family and friends and relatives and supporters and people everywhere in, in the riding, and not only get them to sign up as members, but also get them out to the nomination meeting. The kind of nomination meeting we didn't hear much about was the kind of meeting you might hear described in some outdated or out-of-touch political science text about how an ideal party nomination would work. One where party members, people with deeply held shared values, get together and choose from amongst themselves who the best candidate to represent those values in the election and ultimately in the legislature so would be. with any contested nomination for any party, bring in new membership because you have to be a member to vote. And... Um, I think that the people that supported him were friends of his um, and not necessarily New Democrats because when I won, they were no longer members. <laughs> there was one simple strategy for winning the nomination, recruit the most members. This is the grassroots of partisan politics in Nova Scotia. This is the local presence of political parties in your community. And this is where all MLAs begin the journey that ends in them becoming a lawmaker. The kind of nomination meetings we heard about, the meetings that launch political careers, could be categorized in three ways. The stacked room, the empty room, and the rubber stamp. The first one, the stacked room, seemed to be the most common. There would be at least two candidates, and each of them did everything they could to get their friends and family out to vote for them. Most of the voters didn't have any allegiance to the party. They were there to support their friend, their coworker, or their cousin. In the end, whoever brings the most people out wins. Usually, it was pretty clear who had the most supporters at the beginning of the evening. The room was stacked. Then there's the empty room. The interest level is low, maybe because the riding association didn't do much to get the word out, and perhaps that was because they didn't think they could win the district. But eventually they do, and so a political career quietly begins. Then there's the rubber stamp. For instance, when a party currently holds the riding and the serving MLA intends to run again, that MLA is rarely challenged. The room is still stacked, but everyone is there to support that MLA. 
The rubber stamp also shows up when there is a clear party favorite, someone that's been handpicked by the leader or the local riding association, without much effort being spent to recruit alternative candidates. At the other end of the spectrum, if the party and voters don't think there's a chance of winning the riding, then there's unlikely to be a competition, and the rubber stamp happens in the almost empty room. And then there's the kind of nomination meetings like the one Francine Cosman faced when she sought the liberal nomination in Bedford. These ones are, from what we have heard, quite rare. The nomination meetings where, at the beginning of the evening, these contests always seem to happen in the evening, nobody has any clue which candidate is going to win. Were you contested in your nomination? Oh, God, yes. Hotly contested. Wow. Tell me about that. <laughs> well, there was one other candidate. He was a retired RCMP. He was well-known in hockey circles. His son was a star player in hockey. And so we were all out beating the bushes trying to drum up people to come and support us at the nomination meeting. Mm. And uh, the night of the nomination, there were about between 1,100 and 1,200 people showed up to vote. And the rumor was there were going to be busloads of hockey players coming in to vote for my opponent. <laughs> that was pretty good. Well, Francine had been an active feminist. She'd worked with the Advisory Council on the Status of Women, and her opponent began spreading rumors about her position on abortion. And that became the defining issue of the nomination race. And what had happened was there was a lot of misinformation floating around saying I was, you know, all for abortion and all this stuff. I had a nice little speech all written and... One of my supporters came to me and said, look, this is what's rippling around the room right now. And I said, okay, I'll throw my speech away and I'll get up and talk on the issue. What were they saying and what was your opinion? Well, the, the thing was, because I'm a feminist and I had worked for the status of women, they just assumed automatically that I was somebody who was um, not pro-life, okay? Pro-life is totally against abortion. Mm -hmm. And I'm pro-choice, but... I talked about the fact that I had teenage daughters, and if it ever happened that they came to me and said they were pregnant, could they have an abortion, these were the steps I would take to advise them what they need to think about before they'd make such a life-altering change for themselves. And I talked about that. I wouldn't want my family to have to have an abortion, but in the end, if that was their choice, I would support their choice. And if you hadn't said that, you don't think you would have won? The odds were against me winning with the numbers that my can that my opponent had signed up. Uh -huh. Yeah, truly they were against me. So mm -hmm. I did, and um, I won. However candidates won their nomination, through a contested race like Francine's, by being on the right side of a stacked room, by being the only candidate in an empty room, or by being on the receiving end of the rubber stamp, the next step was the same. Win the local district seat. Some MLAs ran in the by-election, but most MLAs ran in the general election. Oh, and there's another way to get elected, without the support of a political party. You ran as an independent. However, in the last 30 years, there have been just nine independent candidates elected to the Nova Scotia legislature, and all of them were originally elected on a party ticket, but were either removed from the party or left on their own before running for re-election. It's almost as if it's impossible to get elected to the legislature without going through the party system first. Once a party candidate has been nominated, the job shifts from recruiting members for the party to meeting the voters. And the candidate's job is to meet people and to speak to them and uh, to try to put your side of the story across of how you can make a difference or why you feel you should. Yeah. Good old-fashioned door knocking remains one of the most effective ways to meet potential voters. And most MLAs enjoyed it. 
That, that was always my favorite thing to do. People said, how can you stand going to all those stores? Don't you feel stupid standing at the doorstep saying, you know, I hear I want your vote. Just found it fascinating. I loved every bit of it. You know, it was just always interesting that, hmm, I wonder who's going to answer this store. And then you got a real sense of this being a microcosm of society. I love the campaign anyway, quite frankly. The best part of politics, maybe, I think, is the campaign. Because you're on the boat, you're meeting people, if you're a people person. And this, that's just, it's almost like Hollywood to a certain extent because you're really out there. It was gratifying in that I'm very fit and healthy and always have been. And so walking miles and miles and knocking on doors. <laughs> door knocking often opened the eyes of candidates to the range of voices that exist in a community, but also to their living situations. They were going door to door with a very explicit purpose, to ask for a voter's support. But they left each door, having quite literally peered into the homes and lives of the people they wanted to represent. It's quite something to to knock on a door and not to be turned away as a complete stranger. You know, doors opened to an incredible, incredible diversity of experiences and lives. And, and you know, sometimes you'd run across things that you're just, oh dear, you know, this is somebody has just never thought that they don't need to live in this way or whatever. That's Michelle Raymond, who served as the MLA for Halifax Atlantic, a writing that included Spryfield, the community she talks about in this story. She ran for the NDP and served as the MLA from 2002 to 2013. She ran in four elections, but it just took her one campaign to see the realities of what some residents of her constituency were facing. She recalls arriving in an apartment building on one of her days of canvassing. It was a sunny afternoon, and everybody was outside. It was not a not a well-to-do building by any means. It was a sunny afternoon, and everybody was sitting outside in beat-up lawn chairs. And some of them lived in the apartment building, and some of them didn't live anywhere. And what emerged was that uh, they were afraid to be inside because the electrical box was shorting out. And so I thought, well, you know, let's... I, I can't really Michelle took a break from campaigning and called the fire marshal to resolve the situation with the electrical box. And fortunately that did happen, but I mean that was not something that really I took on as, a, as any kind of a candidate or anything. It was just... The fire marshal eventually came and resolved that particular issue and Michelle resumed campaigning for the day. But the lasting impact of this experience, at least for Michelle, was a sustained awareness of what kind of challenges the people she would go on to represent were facing in their everyday lives. And this wasn't the only time Michelle provided one-on-one help to voters during the campaign, something most MLAs only recalled doing once they had been elected. You don't, you don't really expect. And until you're actually um, in somebody's, I won't say in their house, in their space, in their life, and people do admit you to their life for that couple of minutes, you don't know. You know, and to be able to tell them that, yes, you know, there's help. I mean, people will, you know, the government will actually help you to install indoor plumbing in your house, that kind of thing, if you don't have the money and haven't had the money for the last 30, 35 years. Actually, there are a couple of households like that over the years. Wow. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Michelle yeah. wasn't the only person we spoke to who was awakened by what she saw on the doorstep on the campaign trail. For many of the MLAs, being a candidate was like nothing they had ever experienced before. And, and then running in the, the actual election campaign, were there any uh, kind of like moments of surprise or learning there? Oh, well, it was, it was, you know, not a steep learning curve. It was straight up. You yeah. know, it was vertical. It was just... Even in the election campaign? Yeah, yeah. I'd never been a candidate. And it, it doesn't matter what you think you know until you're the one out there with the name on the sign and you're knocking on doors. And you don't know what you're in for. You right. never do. But it's like everything in life. 
You know, you get married, you think you know what that's going to be like? Are you kidding? You have a baby, you think you know what it's going to be like to be a parent? No. The vertical learning curve encountered by candidates on the campaign trail was a sign of things to come for MLAs. On our next podcast, we ask the question, once you get elected, how do you learn to be an MLA? Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Offscript Podcast. If you liked what you've heard, make sure to subscribe in iTunes or wherever it is that you keep your podcasts. Do us another favor and share it with friends you think might be interested. A shareable version of each podcast can be found at audioboom.com slash offscript. Offscript is produced by Springtide, and this podcast is one of a handful of projects we're working on to help Nova Scotians learn about and better engage with our politics. Be sure to like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash Springtide Collective, follow us on Twitter at Springtide Co., and sign up for email updates at springtidecollective.ca for updates on all of our projects. This episode of Offscript was written and produced by Louise Cockrum, Sandra Hannibal, and me, Mark Coffin, and many volunteer transcribers. The theme music you heard in this podcast comes from Josh Spacek at Needledrop.co, and the other music you heard comes from Kevin McLeod at Incompetech. Thank you to the Association of XMLAs and all MLAs who participated in our interviews. Offscript is made possible with funding we got from the Democracy 250 Youth Engagement Legacy Trust. That funding got us started, but in order to keep it going and keep producing better, higher quality podcasts, we need support from people like you. You can donate at offscript.ca slash donate. If you have something you'd like to share with the Offscript team, contact us at offscript at springtidecollective.ca. 